Hey, good afternoon, church. My name is Robin. I have the joy of serving as lead pastor with my wife, Laura, and it's great to be with you this afternoon. I'm really uh, pleased to be back into the Gospel of Mark, and thanks to Dan Trafford, who read all 26 verses. I, we, we maybe should have had a conversation about reading all of them, but it's actually been kind of cool because by the end of this series, we will have read together as a church every verse in Mark, which is pretty neat. And uh, we're coming to the close after about two years grinding our way through the Gospel of Mark. So for those of you that are just joining us, it's been a real joy to be looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Now, when we started this series, part of the reason for it in my heart and in the heart of our team is we began this, this process of preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark was that we would move from following a reductionist caricature of Jesus to following the Jesus of the scriptures. My Simple Church and I have been dialoguing for the last uh, couple of weeks through the, uh, the letter of 1 John. And in the letter of 1 John, John tells us to, to be like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to do as Jesus has done. But one of the things that can happen if we are not very intentional and very careful is that we can, in the effort to follow Jesus, we can end up not really following the Jesus of the scriptures, Jesus of the gospels. We can end up following the Jesus of our own making, following the Jesus that we've kind of just reduced or caricatured in our thinking. And so if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to follow the living Jesus, it's so vitally important that we derive our understanding of who Jesus is from the scriptures, from what he actually said and did and taught. This passage that we're going to be studying together today for the next 45 minutes or so is one of the most important passages to understanding Jesus' life and what it means to be a follower of him, and what it means to do as he did. This whole passage that we've been looking at, that we're going to look at, Jesus is sort of uh, set up as the, 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 the counterpoint to Peter. Peter in this passage is sort of the, the representative of... Um, the fool, if you were. Now, not just representative, he actually did act as a fool in this scenario, but Jesus and Peter are kind of being contrasted in this passage. Jesus says, I will follow you even if it means my life, but when push comes to shove, Peter abandons Jesus. Jesus, who faces his fears, who is afraid, who is tormented by what lies in front of him, remains faithful in the trial. Many years later, Peter who is sort of set up as the, the, the fool, as I mentioned, would write a letter called 1 Peter. And when he writes this letter called uh, 1 Peter to the churches, he says something very interesting in 1 Peter 2. He says, For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then just a few verses down in verse 25, it says, You were sheep like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
It's really interesting that he brings in this shepherding metaphor because it's the very scripture that Jesus quotes to Peter saying, you will scatter when the shepherd is struck. So when Jesus, or sorry, when Peter says in 1 Peter that we need to look to Jesus as an example, I have no doubt that in, in, in Peter's mind, he remembered these moments together in Gethsemane. Remembered the moments of Jesus' anguish, followed by Jesus' faithfulness. You see, to Peter, Jesus wasn't a religious leader. He wasn't a caricature. He wasn't an idea, and he wasn't an ideal. To Peter, Jesus was his friend who showed him what real, authentic love looks like. To Peter, to be like Jesus is to personally lay your life down in humiliating, brutal, agonizing, painful, excruciating fashion. See, to Peter, Jesus was the one that he had betrayed, and yet Jesus was the one who had remained faithful. So when Peter calls us to be like Jesus, can we read what is in that statement to be? When Jesus is an example, Peter is not just saying Jesus was a moral leader or Jesus was a good guy or Jesus just, quote, loved everyone. No, to Peter, Jesus gave his life. In other words, for Peter... To be like Jesus was anything but practical, but it was so, so real. See, Jesus is our model. What that means is that we are to do what Jesus has done. We are to repeat, to reenact, to follow in his footsteps. And what I hope to explore in this passage is what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus as our model, as our example, as we've been instructed to from the scriptures, looking at the central moment in Jesus' life right before he's crucified. What does it mean to be faithful like Jesus? Now to set this up, I want to draw out three different aspects of Jesus' response to the trial that he was going to face that exhibited a radical kind of faithfulness. And I want to start by talking about how Jesus was entirely dependent on the scriptures. You see, Jesus, as he's facing the trial, the greatest trial of his life, he's facing what he knows is going to be his crucifixion. He does something really interesting. He repeatedly quotes from the scriptures. Verse 27, he says, And all of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
right as he's arrested, he says in verse 49, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. If you read into his prayer in Gethsemane, it seems like he's quoting from Psalms 42 and 43. This is really interesting because what it means is that as Jesus is is walking out this great trial, as he's walking out great pain, he's depending on the scriptures and he's demonstrating that it is the scriptures that anchor him through that great trial. Why is this so important? Well, let me give you one really practical example in our lives. I imagine that for Jesus, it would have been very tempting to slip into a form of self-pity. Everyone has abandoned me. Everyone has deserted me. Nobody likes me. I mean, earlier in Jesus' life, he has all these followers, and he he says to his disciples after everyone deserts him, he says, are you going to desert me as well? I can imagine for Jesus there would have been many moments where he would have said, Woe is me. I'm a failure. I'm nothing. But he doesn't. Why doesn't Jesus slip into self-pity when his friends betray him? Why doesn't he give up? Why doesn't he quit? Why doesn't he throw in the towel? Why doesn't he become self-piteous? Well, in short, because the scriptures told him it was going to happen. He recognizes that the trials that he is facing are part of the process and the reason for which he has come. He recognizes the hand of the Lord is steady and faithful even in his moments of great pain. You see, the scriptures anchored Jesus and protected him from the lie of self-pity. He knew because the scriptures told him that his people would scatter. And therefore, he wasn't surprised by it. You know, self-pity in particular is, is very tempting. It's a very tempting thing. And if I'm honest, it's very tempting for me. The Lord's been really revealing to me that I have a tendency towards self-pity. Woe is me, it's so hard. Why is everybody miserable, blah, blah, blah. And what the Lord has been teaching me is that so often my tendency to self-pity is because I am becoming more self-dependent than I am scripture-dependent. I'm depending on the people around me. I'm depending on my own abilities more than I depend on the truths that arise out of God's Word to tell me how to conduct myself, to tell me what to expect, to tell me what to anticipate, to tell me what to value, to tell me what to do, to tell me how to respond, to tell me how to react. Now, instead of going to Scripture, I, I go to myself. And I become self-piteous. Whereas Jesus went to the Scriptures because He knew it, He would be betrayed. He went to the scriptures to know 
from Isaiah how he would die. And therefore he says, therefore I can trust my Lord because he's faithful. This is so, so important because Jesus' authority, Jesus' confidence, Jesus' security didn't necessarily come from himself. It came from the scriptures. Over and over and over again, Jesus quotes the scriptures to validate his authority as he does at the very beginning of this passage. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. He's validating his own authority using the scriptures. Jesus' authority doesn't necessarily just come because he felt great about himself or he had lots of self-confidence. No, Jesus' authority came because the scriptures told him he had authority. Contrast that with our tendencies to say, I can do it. Our tendency to be autonomous, self-dependent, self-assured, and self-fulfilled. And the challenge is that when things are good, when things are going well for us, it's easy to be certain in ourselves. But when things fall apart, self-doubt creeps in. Or when painful experiences come, our self-pity creeps in. Jesus was able to be faithful to what was in front of him because he used scripture as his reference point, not his experiences. Let me say that again. Jesus was able to be faithful in part because he used scripture as his reference point, not his experiences. Too often as believers, we, and in the discipleship process, we allow our experiences to tell us what to do rather than going to Scripture. When we go to Scripture, what we will discover is that the world will mock us. The world will think we are crazy and fools. Our disciples will not always follow us. They may abandon us. They may slander us. What we read about in the scriptures is that the life of the Christian is not necessarily onwards and upwards towards sort of this, this blissful existence here on earth, but no, rather it's a call to walk in steady faithfulness, learning that it's in Christ we can do all things. Not in our own ability and not in our experiences. We have to go to the scriptures to define our understanding of this world. But the challenge is, in order to do that, we actually have to read the scriptures. What's fascinating is that for the amount Jesus quotes the scriptures, what we don't see is that Jesus would have spent a tremendous amount of his energy learning the scriptures. And so he could respond anchored in Scripture because he had done the prep work to know the Scriptures. But too often as Christians, we try to grapple with personal trials, we try to grapple with discipleship challenges without having laid the foundation of time in the Word. And the, to be honest, one of the most encouraging things that I've had over the last few weeks, it's been, it's been just tremendous, is watching some of our youngest believers in the church learn to go to Scripture. They don't know much of it, 
And they got a few verses pieced together here, but they're going to scripture to say, Jesus, show me what to do. Show me what to believe. Show me what is true. Show me what is right. Show me what is good. If we want scripture to help us make sense of our experiences, we have to lay the foundation before the experiences come by knowing the word. Here's a test for you. When you find yourself reacting to a circumstance, ask yourself, what specific scripture, or what does scripture specifically say to my reaction? And secondly, ask yourself, how might it challenge my thinking or cause me to be less self-dependent and more dependent on Christ? But maybe, maybe some of you would say, well, Robin, we need to be careful. We need to be careful here. We need to not go to extremes of using the scriptures. You know, it's hard to know what they all mean. It's, there's so many different interpretations. How do we know if the interpretation is right? Or You know, there's a real temptation in, in those of us that follow Jesus to reduce scripture and the interpretation of it to just mere opinion. And therefore, we kind of go to Scripture less as a source of authority in our lives. We tend to go to Scripture more as an opinion or a place for inspiration. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus isn't merely quoting Scripture, and he doesn't merely quote Scripture. No, he uses Scripture as his authority to validate his authority. We have to, as believers, use Scripture as the final authority in our lives. It overrules all other opinions and perspectives. And maybe, maybe you might say, well, Robin, but, but, but Scripture is not always that clear, or there must be val- many valid readings, to which I would say be very careful. Be very careful. We have to be very careful that we have not set up an authority higher than Scripture to make sense of Scripture. We read Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit unto itself. It doesn't mean that we can't do good study and look into the background and, and, and do, uh, be intellectually honest in the process. But we need to be very careful... In fact, not only do we need to do, should we do those things, we need to do those things, but we need to be very careful that we don't set up an authority higher than Scripture to interpret Scripture. See, what we can start to believe is that because there's many different ways to read Scripture, that therefore there is not really truth in Scripture. And therefore we can't be confident in the teaching of Scripture. But let me say this quite clearly. If Scripture doesn't clearly communicate the truth, it's not much use. Think about that. God has given us His Word so that it is a light unto our feet. It is not as vague and open-ended as so often we might be led to believe. 
There is a system and a process and a way to read the scriptures faithfully. And I'd encourage you to go to uh, engage, download the, the hermeneutic guide, the interpretation guide that we've posted on how to read scripture. It's a good starting place. Review some of our teaching on it last year. I've noticed that there's a real trend. This is a real issue in, in our culture, and it's, a, uh, I think, a real challenge in our church, so much so that, uh, in fact, we're going to be doing some uh, expanded teaching on this on the webcast in the coming weeks, learning what it means to put Scripture as a first authority in our lives. You know, I've invested... 20 minutes now trying to make the case that we need to learn to submit to Scripture in our lives. Church, don't roll your eyes at me with me on this one. Like, it, 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 is, it is so vitally important. This is the basis of everything we do as believers. Without Scripture, we don't have a leg to stand on. We need to know Scripture. We need to trust Scripture. We need to use Scripture. The second thing that I see is in Jesus' response here in verse 36. He says, in, in, in Jesus' grieving, in his pain, in his hurt, in his torment, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but what you will. I, oh, that we would pray that prayer, church. When we are faced with great trial and great torment, when we are faced with great challenges, that we would pray the prayer, Lord, this is hard but not my will, but yours. I want to draw out a few things that Jesus did here that are, that are pretty interesting. The first is that Jesus, in this passage, he, he faces his emotions. So often in the life of following Jesus, we, and especially in the life of, of trying to walk out faithful discipleship and making disciples, we, we're almost uh, afraid to acknowledge that it's hard. <laughs> It's like if we admit that it's hard, then maybe we'll, like, I don't know, admit that we want to give up or something. <clears throat> the truth is that it is hard. I sat our team down our skirts and our multipliers and a lot of our operations people a few weeks ago and kind of just assessed, like, how are you guys doing? And you know what? They're tired. They're struggling. I suspect that we all are. And that's okay. It's okay. In fact, we will feel the entire range of emotions following Jesus. There's this myth that following Jesus should be totally emotionally sort of neutral or at least po positive or at least neutral all of the time but that's not true again go to scripture you read that the, the disciples they they faced the whole range 
of emotions. Jesus walked the whole range of emotions. We don't need to deny how we feel. But instead we need to not be defined by how we feel. So on one hand, Jesus faced his emotions. The second part here is that Jesus overcame his emotions. Jesus' emotions, they were not the destination. He didn't say, well, I guess I'm feeling grief. I guess I'm feeling despair. I guess this is really hard, so I'm just going to use that to define my future actions. No, his emotions were the trigger that drove him to time with his father. Look at what happens here. He says, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. And he went a little further, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He uses his grief as a vehicle to drive him to the Father. He uses his fear. He uses his despair. This is the nature of grit, what it means to be gritty. Sometimes people think that, that somebody who has lots of grit doesn't experience fear or doesn't experience despair. Sometimes I think people maybe even think of me that I, like, I don't experience tiredness or frustration. The SLT, we had a meeting, and I was very frustrated at our meeting on Friday. They know that I experience frustration. The truth is that people who persevere still experience fear, anxiety, stress. The existence of those emotions is not an indication that something is inherently wrong or that we need to give up. Rather, it is an indication that what we need to do is, as we are instructed in 2 Corinthians, to take the thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We can feel what we feel in the moment, but we must not be ruled by what we feel in the moment. We must learn the skill, and it is a skill, of taking what we feel and teaching it to obey Christ. And it's a skill that takes practice. Notice what Jesus does. This is how I feel. I feel grieved. I feel anxious. I feel afraid. but I submit it to you, Father. He takes his emotions and he, he, he has the skill of submitting that emotion to his Father. And our flesh, you see, our flesh will get in the way of this. Maybe because of indignation, maybe because of our pride, maybe because the emotion that we're feeling is familiar, right? We, we, we like the sense of feeling angry or we like the sense of feeling Afraid, maybe not because it's enjoyable, but because it's at least something that we can uh, sort of feel a place of safety in, or a place of security, or maybe a sense of control in. Maybe our hurt, we, 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 we cling to the emotion that I've been hurt. Somebody has, you know, has, a grie has grieved us or has a grievance against us. But what we instead do, instead of holding to those emotions, we take and we submit them. We say, all right, I've got to go to my father. I've got to go spend time with my father and sort this out. Which leads to the final thing that Jesus does in terms 
of going to his father is that Jesus' faithfulness, his grit, his obedience, was an overflow of his relationship with his father. He comes and he prays, Abba, Father, which is this deeply personal statement. He isn't praying a rote religious prayer. He's playing a prayer of deep, authentic relationship. You see, if we are trying to lead, if we're trying to do the simple church thing, or we're trying to do the discipleship thing, or we're trying to do the church thing, or we're trying to do the Christian thing, out of a legalistic sense of obedience, we will be crushed by it. We cannot be faithful to a legalistic principle. No, you see, Jesus' ability to be faithful was not because he legalistically said, well, I guess it's my obligation to go to the cross, so I'm going to do it. No, his ability to be faithful came from a deep-rooted trust and love of his Father. Jesus didn't go to the cross out of legalistic obligation. He went because he loved and trusted his Father. We don't make disciples because we have a structure for disciple-making. We don't open our homes to hospitality because we have a value called open home. We, we, we don't uh, commit to evangelizing and making disciples because that's what we have structurally said we're going to do. No, we, we do those things because they're the heart of the Father. Perseverance, the ability to walk out discipleship, cannot come from legalism. It's, it must flow from transformation and encounter with the living God. When we're discipling, when we're teaching people to follow Jesus, please, don't reduce it to a bunch of legalistic rules and obligations. It flows from relationship with our Father. Church, it's too hard. This discipleship journey is too hard. It, it, will, it, will, it will crush us all. But when it flows from the joy of our Father, we can say, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Because I know you are good and I have experienced your love. I have experienced the transformation. I have experienced your goodness. I have experienced your kindness. So I will do and go and say whatever you put in front of me to do, say, or go, because you're worth it. Because you're worth it. Faithfulness has to flow out of relationship with our Father. And the third aspect of what Jesus does here is that his faithfulness, his, his example that he set for us is that it was an example of identity, the identity of a servant. It's very interesting. Verse 41, he says, he says, are you still sleeping and resting? Because his disciples are, like, guys, you're still asleep. Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. 
It's easy to miss the power of these words. Jesus, listen, this is like really important. Jesus in this moment knows he's about to get arrested. He knows that his betrayer has arrived. And what does he do? He goes and meets him. Let's go. My betrayer is here. Jesus is choosing to lay his life down. Jesus runs into the danger, not from it. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that whoever clings to his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. He is modeling this principle of let go of your life. What am I saying? I'm saying this. You cannot love someone else while you are simultaneously protecting yourself. You cannot love someone else the way Jesus loved you if you are also worried about protecting yourself. The Christian life is the call to lay down our lives. To become slaves. To die to ourselves. Totally. Because that's what Jesus did. Well, how far should we take this, right? Like how far is too, too far? Over the years, I've had a lot of very well-meaning people come after me or come up to me after, you know, taught this kind of principle, especially when we were teaching more in public and say things, man, I just really love the call that you have to service in this church. But, but you know, make sure it's balanced. Make sure it's balanced. You know, I, I, get, I get that. This desire to be like, well, we should make sure following Jesus is pragmatic. The desire to, to be practical, I mean, it makes sense. Like, it, we have to live and, you know, eat and have jobs and... Maybe we counter with, well, but, but shouldn't I take care of myself? Shouldn't, you know, I, I make sure that my needs are met as well? Or maybe we counter with, well, what about, what about this all-important idea of self-care? I don't know, it's, it seems to me that Jesus' notion of self-care involved him being crucified for me. That we should not cling to our lives we should lay them down. We should become slaves and servants. Jesus' words. Should we not ask, why should Jesus, following Jesus be practical? Like, aren't we subtly elevating practicality to a place of greater supremacy than the authority of Jesus in our lives? Isn't saying we should be pragmatic kind of dictating an authority greater than Christ? 
I'll give you an example practically from marriage. If we want healthy, happy marriages, what we need to do is completely commit to serving the other person. Radically, totally. If we want to be miserable in our marriages or in relationships, keep score. Worry about yourself. Put your needs first. But if we love like Jesus loved, completely self-sacrificially, and both parties do that, man, is a recipe for the most thriving, beautiful marriage you could ever imagine. So long as we are protecting our own interests, our marriages will be weak. As a culture right now, we're playing a game. The game, I call it, who gets the power? And all these different... Groups, political groups, uh, social groups, uh, academic groups are, are all vying for you know, the voice, for power, for legitimacy, for authority, for recognition. And it's so easy to get sucked into the, the power game. Shouldn't we advocate and protect ourselves? Shouldn't we advocate and protect our rights? What if we're being walked over? What if, what if, what if? To which I would ask, shouldn't Jesus have defended himself against his accusers? He was innocent. Shouldn't Jesus have protected himself? He was harmless. Jesus, who despite being God himself, did not think of his stature as something to protect, but instead humbled himself and adopted the posture of a slave even unto death. Okay, okay, maybe, maybe we shouldn't seek power, but maybe we should at least seek fairness. Maybe we should aim to always have it fair in our lives. What happened to Jesus, his love for us, as Dan brilliantly highlighted last week, was horrifically unfair and yet gloriously generous to us. Jesus' disciples demonstrated that they wanted fairness. It was not fair that Jesus was arrested. And so in order to achieve fairness, they took up the very tools of oppression that they had come to hate. They took up the sword. And they struck off the ear. And Jesus says, stop. I'm not playing that game. Why? Because Jesus loved those that arrested him. He would go on later to say, Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. Jesus saw in them their intrinsic worth, their beauty, And he saw that the only way that he could bring peace to them and freedom to them and grace to them was if he denied himself and laid on his life if he became the servant. The call to follow Christ is the call to radical servanthood. The denying of self and saying, I will give my life sacrificially for those around me. Not in a theoretical sense, but in a practical sense. I will show up. I will be present. I will give my time, my energy, my resources, my finances, my emotions, my home, my space, my relationships, I will give them all 
that one more would be made alive in the hope of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did for me. I hope you're still with me because I want to close with a very, very important summary. Maybe you're saying, well, thanks, Robin. Another tough sermon, but I just can't. I just can't serve like that. I just can't give like that. My tank's empty. I'm afraid. I agree with it. It sounds nice. It sounds beautiful. It sounds good. But I just can't. I just can't. Verse 51. And now there was a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth. Those following him, Jesus. And they caught a hold of him, the people arresting Jesus. But he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Other than being a fairly humorous scene, I think it's somewhat apt. You and I look at the call that has just been laid out, and like that, that young boy that ran away naked from Jesus, we look and go, I can't. I can't. I would rather run away naked in my shame. It's too much. We're like the disciples, myself included. We're like the disciples falling asleep when Jesus in his hour of need is saying, I, Jesus, I can't. I'm trying to stay awake. I just, I just can't. We're like Peter. We, we come out impetuously swinging. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be faithful. But we deep down know that we, we, we can't. It's so interesting that this disciple runs away naked. How apt is that as a description of our lives? Running away naked. But here's the best part. Jesus didn't look at Peter and his brokenness or in his impetuous zeal and say, therefore I want no relationship with you. He didn't look at John, Peter, and the other disciples falling asleep on him in their weakness and saying, therefore, I want nothing to do with you. Jesus didn't look at the young man running away naked in embarrassment and in fear because he was ashamed of Jesus and say, therefore, I want nothing to do with you. No. He looked at their weaknesses and he looks at your weaknesses and says, I will go die for you. He knows you are weak. He knows I am weak. But you see, just a short while later, in just a few hours, Jesus would be stripped naked and he would be the one humiliated on the cross for you and for I. Well, we all run and we say, I can't do it. Jesus looks at us and says, I love you. I love you. I love you enough that even though you might be feeling like you're running away ashamed and naked, Jesus is saying, I will actually become naked for you. I will bear your shame 
that you would know freedom, that you would know love, that you would know grace, that you would know kindness. Jesus' response to us looking at this and saying, I can't live like Jesus. Jesus says, I know. And I love you. Come follow me. Come take a step with me. Come take that next baby step with me. Trust me, I am. And I'm going to prove my trust by dying on a cross for you. I said a moment ago that none of this can come out of a legalistic obedience. It must flow from a transformational encounter. Do you see how much Jesus loves us? And so we go to the scriptures as our authority. We build relationship with our Father. And we sacrificially love those around us. Not because we'll ever do those things perfectly, but because Jesus went and did it first for us. And we're just trying to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this word of trusting your scriptures, of running from legalism to relationship, of truly becoming servants, running to the danger for others. Lord, I pray that all of that would come because we look at you and we see that you have run to it first for us. You are so kind. You are so good. Lord, I pray that wherever people are tuning in today, that they would see your goodness, they would see your kindness, and they would respond. Amen. Amen. So my invitation is... For you guys to discuss, to think, what can you be more, how can you be more like the Jesus we read about in Mark 14 today? Try to be specific. What did Jesus do that's going to change how we respond and live this week? Love you guys. Thanks for sharing the word with me this week. Be blessed.